Three, two, one. This is a recorder. Why are you recording? I'm recording because I have a story that I want to share with you all. Did you guys know that Nora's a journalist? Do you know what a journalist is? We were just talking. Oh my God, this is so funny. Because we were just talking about journalism in the car this morning. These are my friends, Mike and Anna Shinoda. I love watching them parent. We were talking about the fact that it's very hard to tell stories in a way without bias. And even if people are trying not to have bias, they'll probably have bias anyway. Did you all have any opinions about bias? No, I don't think I it's good. The backseat. You don't think it's good? I was just sitting at this same dinner table a month ago, telling them about my new project, Rep. The last time that we came and we visited, and the night before we had to go fly back home, we stayed here. And I shared with you the investigative series that I've been working on. And do you remember what one of your first reactions to what I said was? I remember saying that when Muslims were in recent history, like in the last few years, getting stopped from entering the country, that the Japanese Americans were standing up and saying, we've lived through this. Mike is Japanese American. You might know him from Lincoln Park or Fort Minor, where he raps. He said the U.S. is looking for spies, so we have to live in a place called Mandinar, where a lot of Japanese people are. His father, his 11 siblings, and their parents were all interned in Poston, Arizona. Uh, happened during World War II, there's internment camps, like we're headed in this direction, and we've already seen what that looks like. At your service, an iHeartMedia present Rep, Chapter 4, Shikata Genai. It cannot be helped. I'm in LA for an event, but I extend the trip an extra day with the intention that maybe an interview for Rep will line up. I have a list of who I want to talk to for the series, and it just isn't working out. Adam, who's my partner in everything, tells me... You're the one who tells people not to show up to a story with a pre-written script. The entire point of rep is to be open to where the story takes you and to challenge the stories you knew. You need to surrender to the project and it'll take you exactly where it's meant. And later that day, I meet a woman named Hinako. Hinako is a makeup artist. My name is Hinako Murashige. I have the pleasure of working with Hinako to get ready for a dinner that I'm attending. And I'm drawn to her artistry because of her work with one of my favorite musicians, St. Vincent. I was getting ready for this event, and I mentioned the event, and Hinako said, Oh, yeah, I, I, I'm working with someone who's going to the same event. Nor, she's a journalist. That's the voice of the one and only Annie Clark also known as the Grammy-winning artist St. Vincent. Well, long story short, we show up to the event and Nora and I are sat at the same table. And we got to talking and fawning over Hinako. I was hoping you guys meet. And I guess a series of little tiny miracles led to this story unfolding. I am from Hiroshima. As you know, we had atomic bomb. Like, so that was 1945. Especially my generation, I was born in 75. So in the school, start from first grade, we just watching the footage the American army shot or videotaped everything what happened right after the atomic bomb was bombed in Hiroshima. So I had a very specific, I guess, growing up experience. 
I think about how when I mentioned rep to my friend Mike, he first thought of his own community, Japanese Americans, specifically ones who were interned in camps during World War II. So I share this with Hanako, and I ask her, knowing that survivors may be in their 80s and 90s, is there any chance you may know someone? My husband is fourth generation of Japanese Americans, and they don't really speak up, but I knew that my father-in-law, mother-in-law went to Japanese concentration camp during World War II. She tells me her father-in-law happens to live close by. And I realize he is the person that I was meant to interview next. I arrived at a senior living community called Atherton, just an hour outside of LA with traffic. Hi! Hello! I'm only expecting to meet Steven, Hinako's husband, and Don, Steven's father. But to my incredible surprise, two other people show up to our interview. Hi, I'm Shogo Morishige. I'm one of the ones here that that are the older ones. And then we could talk about things that we had experienced during before camp and after camp and uh, not necessarily at camp because we were kind of young. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of things that we have heard mm-hmm. that, that we could pass on. But uh, I'm 50, no, <laughs> 80, 85. 85. <laughs> yeah. Wow, thank you. My name is uh, Mitsuru Shiozaki. And I am 87. I'm Nancy Shiozaki. How? Oh, it's your birthday oh, today. 80, 83. I have to get used to 83. <laughs> <laughs> Mitsuru, who goes by Mitz, and Nancy showed up for this conversation because they too were forced to live in internment camps with their families when they were children. You see, in February 1942, a couple of months after Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, forcing over 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry into internment camps for the next three years. The reason? The U.S. government claimed to be worried about Japanese spies. Of course, no one who was incarcerated was ever convicted of espionage. Hi. Hi. You know, my sister's also here if you want to talk to her. Hello, hello. Is this your sister? Nice to meet you. Can you give your full name and if you're comfortable with your age? Sure. Um, Kosko Tanaka. I live here at Atherton. I'm uh, 82. Uh, My name is Etsuko Saguchi, and I'm... Actually, the same age as Kaz. We're twins. You're twins? <laughs> How did you not tell me that part? Oh, well, you know, I, I don't always do that. You know. Let me go get my twin sister. <laughs> at this point, word about my visit spreads at the senior living community. People continue to join our group, eager to share their stories. And I quickly realize this is the turning point for Rep. The story about the stories we tell. During World War II, the American narrative featured Japanese people as the villains. As a Muslim American, I relate to this storyline, and I want to know how this experience shaped who they are today. Well, I just think it's so special that we came here thinking we were going to be talking to two people, and then I look back and there's 10 people So out of everybody here, raise your hand if you were ever in one of the camps. One, two, three, four, five. Five people. Oh, same with camp you're from. Camp Poston, Arizona. Heart Mountain, Wyoming. Uh, Gila, Arizona. We started out from, um, from our farm to San Anita, and then from there we went to Rower, Arkansas. Oh, well, obviously, I came with Kaz. <laughs> uh, but uh, I was uh, 
We went to Rower, Arkansas, and actually... Now we are all gathered together outside, ten of us and counting. Sitting at a table with an umbrella giving us shade, it's a perfect sunny California day. The sky is extra blue, birds are out, and Don gets right into it. The reason why I have to really firm names is the fact that I go by Don when I was in English classes, you know, going to school. But all my relatives and, and really good friends don't be a showgo, you know. But um, either one, you know, I will answer to either one. <laughs> why Why would going by showgo make someone closer to you than the people who call you I don't know, because shogo is always, yeah, part of the Japanese in me. My mother was born in America. My father was born in Hawaii. So the only ones in Japan would be my grandparents. So my folks are the second generation. There's a Japanese hospital in Los Angeles. That's where I was born. Okay, here's the scene. You're born in the States. Your parents probably are too. The government of the country that your ancestors are from attacks the U.S. And a few months later, your family gets an aggressive knock on your door. You have days to pack up your entire lives, whatever you can carry in two hands, and you move to internment camps to live in inhumane conditions. For how long? You don't know. Suddenly, because of something that has nothing to do with you as a person, you are now deemed the enemy. How old were you when you were there? And We were three years old. Mm -hmm. Three years old when we went into the camps. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other thing is all uh, the camps had set up in barbed wire all the way around. They had towers that were going for, you know, security. And so it's not like it was a summer camp, something like that. Never was like that. This is important to note. People were living in barrack structures with no plumbing or cooking facilities. Almost 2,000 people died while interned at these camps. So when people mentioned December 7th to me, I said, let me tell you what happened on December 7th. And I tell them about my father's experience and our family's experience. December 7th, 1941, also known as Pearl Harbor. When I get asked about that, it's my opportunity to tell them what really happened. And what happened was two months later, Cosco and her family were told to pack, and they were sent to camp in Santa Anita. But we lived in the horse stall. My mother, dear heart that she is, after, well, she never wanted to be near a horse again because we lived where the horses lived. And you made your own mattresses by, they gave you mattress ticking, and we filled it with straw. That was our bed. Sleeping in horse stalls is a devastatingly common story for families who were interned. It was one of the first things my friend Mike told me about his own family's experience. The government just took the land. It, yeah. it didn't matter that the Indians were there, nothing. If eminent domain, they took it. And places like Topaz in the middle of nowhere, uh, Manzanar, Arkansas was in the <laughs> in the, the marshes of the Mississippi River. The swamps. The swamps, yes. Rice was grown in Arkansas before, but then while they were there, they taught them how to make better rice. Japanese farmers. But vegetables too, because the people were not used to having meat and the kind of food the Southerners ate. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's not what we ate. So they grew their own vegetables too. Okay, so tell me about, as a child, like, do you remember the things that you were feeling or the story that you were writing in your head about what was happening in your life? Mitz is eager to share. He was seven years old when he went to camp. Uh, my dad had a strawberry farm in San Luis Rey. When the war broke out, he had no idea that it was taking place because, you know, being out in the farm, you're isolated until the uh, federal government said that you have, I forget how many days you had, a week or something like that, to gather all the things that you can carry with you and then go to the Union Station. And then from there, they're going to send you to 
Poston, which yeah, is in Arizona. Yeah, uh, You went to Poston. On the way there, at one of the stops at the bus, took, I told my, I asked my mom, I says, I want to go home. Uh, and she says, we are going home. And that's at Poston. Oh, our new that's home. your home. Yeah. Yeah. They try to make the best they can with what they had. And so they, they grew watermelon. And then in our block, the men had uh, dug a big hole and, and put some, I think they had koi. Yeah, they, there was koi there. And so they put it in that pond. And they built a bridge over it, you know, like they have in Japan, those arc bridges. So it was a way of, of forgetting, trying to forget what had happened mm. and, and to uh, do the best they can. She got tonight, you know, can't be helped. So let's go forward and not, you know, complain or be angry about what had happened. Shikata Ganai, it cannot be helped. That's the Japanese phrase Mitz just used. And it's a phrase that comes up often when talking about the camp experience. Sometimes I think it's God's plan, God's doing, that uh, puts us through things like that for better things ahead. I understand the spiritual sentiment of shikata ganai, that it cannot be helped or undone. Muslims use the phrase qadar Allah, God's decree has already been decided or predestined. But at what cost? I don't know about loss or gain, but my father was a farmer in the uh, Orange County area, and he lost everything. Um, The equipment, this was about March, April, the crops were coming in. They had worked all winter to get the crops ready, and all of a sudden we had to leave everything. We had to sell our refrigerator for, you know, a tenth of the price. Or if they didn't sell, we just left it. But when you say cost... My father, after the war, could not go back to the farm because he wasn't a citizen. At that time, he couldn't even buy property. And we weren't old enough to buy it in our name. So my father became a gardener in Pasadena, lifelong gardener. So he totally changed his occupation as well. It's interesting that people say uh, that Japanese are natural gardeners. The reason they're gardeners, and there are so many of them, is that's the only one of the few occupations that they could take up independently after the war. People weren't hiring them. And I was always proud of my father, who was a gardener. I didn't realize he had no choice. He had to bring food to the table. Today, in fact, there is a demographic change. Most of the gardeners are Hispanic now. It's, Mm. It's kind of interesting. It's impossible to quantify how much life in internment camps impacted the people who were forced to live there or rather exist there. And that's the thing with generational trauma. It shows up in all of our communities from very different experiences, but in very similar ways. The experiences that I had, I think I still feel that it affected my life, and that uh, it, that'll never change, you know. It just affected my life. And so I try not to think about it because they are experiences that are not very, very good. I probably don't talk about camp life. He, he probably never knew. Steven? I don't know when he knew that I went to camp, but uh, maybe just, no, you didn't know. It, what? Just. <laughs> I knew that he would, I knew that to This father-son interaction feels familiar. Realizing what we think we know about our parents versus what we actually know. Yeah, just like my folks, they never talked about it. As a child, as a a young person, do you want your parents to talk about it? No. They didn't talk about it unless you ask them. And we were probably in high school when we had to start making history reports that we really started talking about it. But we lived the experience. When I first started on this journey, I wanted to begin with a story that I had heard about in my own family. But it was never fully unpacked in our familial conversations. It still isn't fully unpacked. 
and maybe it'll never be in my own lifetime. You see, trauma is passed down for generations. But the sooner we start talking through the things we've gone through, the sooner we can heal ourselves and our families. After a couple of years of living in an internment camp, Don and his family are finally allowed to leave. You know, you stay there all that time, and then when the camp breaks up, they, the government decides, well, you know, that's about all. They, they give you, I think it was like $25 to get back where you want to go. And then when they come back here, there's no place to live. There's nothing really set up for the Japanese to come back here. It was just... You know, you're on your own. My family was lucky in that before the war, there was a family across the street, uh, three French ladies, and they owned a lot of property around where we lived or, or my uh, folks were renting from them. And so when, when we had to go to camp, they held all of my folks' stuff. So we owe those French ladies a lot because they, they took care of a lot of the, daily things that that you would really need you know if you come back here with nothing looking for a job and that's it's just very difficult yeah the thing that kind of impressed me and i thought about it later is that you you heard that uh, term she got an eye can be helped and that was a a popular saying huh that uh, it can be helped yeah and so he did the best he could at the time to to manage. And when they told us that you could only take what you can carry, I was uh, what, seven years old and I had two sisters. One was uh, five and the other was four. They couldn't carry anything. So my dad had to take a great big trunk and just stuffed it with whatever he could. And of course my mom, you know, she uh, had arms to take my uh, sister with so that was our what well, we had to live with whatever he can carry which wasn't a whole lot shikata ganai reminds me of the survival mentalities of so many families building lives in america in 1981 35 years after the last internment camp closed the U.S. government's Commission on Wartime Relocation heard the testimonies of Japanese Americans across the country who spoke out for the first time about their incarceration during World War II. My name is Amy Iwasaki Math. I'm a clinical social worker and have worked in the profession for 23 years. My specialty has been working with Japanese Americans. I was six years old when the war broke out between the United States and Japan. We wanted to believe that America did not hate and reject us. This is the same psychological defense that beaten and abused children use. Mental health experts have found that abused children prefer to believe that they were bad rather than to believe that their parents are bad. Like the abused child who still wants his parents to love him, and hopes that by acting right, he will be accepted. The Japanese Americans chose the cooperative, obedient, and quiet American facade to cope with an overtly hostile, racist America. The problem is that acceptance by submission exacts a very high price. It is at the expense of the individual's sense of true self-worth. Though we may be seen by others as model Americans, we have paid a tremendous psychological price for this acceptance. On the surface, we do not look like former concentration camp victims, but we are still vulnerable. Our scars are permanent and deep. Here's another survivor testimony from the 1981 hearings. My name is Michiko Machida. I had three girls when World War II broke out. The eldest was six and the youngest was two. 
The facilities as such were the most primitive as far as I could determine. The outhouse had no partition, just a board and holes cut into them. This was the epitome of human degradation. You learn quickly that in order to survive, you must adapt yourself to the standards that are set up by the army to try and explain to the children that the reasons why they must accept these new rules, rules of uh, their new social existence, was one of the most difficult things to explain. In retrospect, how does one evaluate these years of internment, the loss of your human dignity, self-esteem, pride, whatever? The lost years for my children, myself, my parents, my brothers and sisters can never be replaced. The process of evaluating trauma your family has gone through is a journey that takes generations to heal. And maybe what can be helped is unpacking the layers underneath the regurgitated story you've told of your past. One of the things that personally happened because of the war was the fact that Japan had uh, started the war. And so what happens is that as I was, my sister and I, as we were growing up, we were leery of ha having anything Japanese, you know, in our life at the time. So I did learn how to speak Japanese. And I think primarily because of the war that uh, just didn't want that in my life at the time. So that's sort of when I was growing up. And my sister's the same way. So like us two, we speak no Japanese at all, hardly any at all. Uh, I I wish I knew how to speak Japanese. I really do, and, and we missed out on that, you know, because of the war. Can I share a memory with you? Yeah. When I was 13, so my whole childhood, I grew up in a very, like, majority white conservative town. Uh. And um, my parents tried so hard to teach me Arabic. Oh. They're both immigrants from Libya. And I remember like my mom filled out a school form one time and it said, do you speak any other languages at home? And she had written Arabic as well. Oh. And I was so embarrassed at school that I, that I hid the form and I put it at the bottom of the uh. pile of the forms because I didn't want anybody to know that I spoke <laughs> Arabic. And then I went to gymnastics practice and before my class started my mom was making me do my Arabic homework but I was giving her such a hard time and then the gymnastics teacher came and said like what are you what are you working on and my mom frustrated said she's doing her Arabic homework and the teacher was so surprised she said you know how to speak a second language she said this with curiosity and astonishment and she totally serious was like that's incredible. Uh -huh. And I remember, unfortunately, like, I needed that validation from a white woman who wasn't uh -huh. the same faith or race or religion or as I was. Now, as an adult, I realized, like, I was so embarrassed because I didn't want to for people to think that I was uh -huh. different. And as I hear your story, that wasn't your fault. Yeah. Like, it wasn't your fault yeah. that you didn't want to learn that. It was because that was the story that was being put on you. Right. And so of course, like it's so hard now as an adult to, to think about that and, and, to, yeah. and to look back on that. Yeah. But what would you say to that child version of yourself and your sister now? Yeah, I regret, regret it that that happened, you know, because uh, probably should have just gone on just a regular uh, learning how to speak at least a little bit of Japanese. Uh, but as it ended up, you know, hardly at all. You know, it's something that, that you missed that you really hope that you hope that you could change, you know, but I don't know. Speaking about speaking Japanese, yeah. uh, well, my parents uh, asked me to go to Japanese school, which I oh. did for three years, but I, I didn't particularly care for it. In fact, uh, when we uh, finally moved to a t uh, permanent place, you know, here in Monterey Park, I told my parents, you know, we should speak English because here we're, we're in America yeah, here yeah. and so I was speaking English and they were listening in English talking back in Japanese Mitz's yeah. <laughs> <So. laughs> <laughs> parents were willing to meet him halfway this is something that's familiar to me too some of my own family would do the exact same thing 
But what I also found compelling is how Mitz was trying to convince his parents to embrace the culture of the same country, which had just finished imprisoning his family. But he was American, so he wanted his family to leave behind their Japanese culture and embrace America's. He wanted to assimilate, which many who come here can relate to. But that pressure of assimilation erases the richness of our diverse cultures which make up America to begin with. Of course, America in the 1940s wasn't exactly eager to celebrate diversity. But what was American culture saying about its Japanese-American citizens? In her essay, The Daughter of Fu Manchu, Dr. Shoba Sharad Rajkopal writes about the stereotypes of Asian peoples and pop culture at the time. She writes that, quote, during the World War II years, the Japanese were depicted in an openly negative light in Hollywood films. Until then, it was the Chinese who were seen as the quintessential Asian villains. This dynamic flips back and forth, and Raj Kapal writes, after, quote, the communist takeover of China in 1949, the Chinese became once more the favorite Hollywood whipping boy, along with the Viet Cong, end quote. There's this idea of the good Asian versus the bad Asian, the good Muslim versus the bad Muslim, and you can apply it to any sub-community. It's that same model minority game that America encouraged all its new immigrants to play. Later on, it would be my community that became Hollywood's new favorite threat. Now, Islamophobia and demonization of Muslims has replaced Yellow Peril, which is another reason I relate to what Mitz is saying and why they seem to relate to what I've known. security precautions to avoid becoming a victim of an attack. Many of us know what it's like to watch TV or movies and see people who you relate to be portrayed as the villain. But what was it like for them back then, before there was internet? How often did young Mitz ever see himself on the screen and not have it feel offensive? Didn't see too many Japanese people on the screen. <laughs> no. We... In fact, they had other people that were... Uh, dressed up like Japanese, you know, and, right. and uh, so I thought, why aren't they showing, you know, getting regular Japanese people to play the part? For instance, in 1944, one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, Katherine Hepburn, played a character of Chinese ethnicity. But to be convincing, she did the role in Yellowface. And... No one batted an eye in 1956 when John Wayne, America's cowboy, played Genghis Khan in The Conqueror. This kind of casual racism was just that common. There was no media representation, but mm -hmm. there were Japanese films because I went to the Japanese theater even after the war, but there were Japanese films. Mifune Toshiro, you know, you know him. So we knew a lot of the Japanese actors, but they were not represented in the films we saw here. So what is the difference to you all between American Japanese culture, American culture, and Japanese culture? We are part of the Japanese American culture because of where we grew up and we we were a small enclave of people, but we were Americans. I considered myself an American. The Japanese part, I lived in Japan. I moved to Japan, lived there for about five years and really appreciate the culture, uh, the, the history, uh, where they are today. Um, but I am not Japanese. I'm Japanese American. Mm. That, that's interesting. Uh, I also lived in Japan for a number of years for my husband's employment. And I always thought I was Japanese until I stepped off the plane and realized, you're not Japanese, you're American. But I very quickly realized that I am not Japanese. I appreciate the Japanese culture, but I'm an American, totally an American. As soon as I opened my mouth, they knew. 
<laughs> Isn't that the story of whenever you go back to the motherland? That's right. Like you can never hide that. Yeah, right. right. You know, I, I have, I have the American accent. It's incredible to see you all so confident, and there's a a deep understanding. Like we are American, but for that period of time, America did not see you all as American, and and isn't that the the difficulty with the story of America, right? Is like you come to this place where you create your life and there's endless possibilities for you to do so. But you all are a part of a community that experienced one of the most horrific acts of oppression that this country has ever inflicted on people. And they not only told you, we don't see you as American, they furthered the narrative and said, we see you as a threat. How do you reconcile that? I can't relate to that because I was so young, but my parents did. And the Shikataganai came in quite often. You know, that's just the way it is. Uh, we are here. We're not leaving. We are, yes, we're being punished. We're, the rug has been taken out from under us, but my f- parents never gave up and said, I would not, I am not going to be an American. Mm. Mm. And that's why I give them credit for not being bitter. I think I would have been, you know, the way I've grown up with the freedom I've had. But my father, my parents didn't have that freedom because they couldn't be citizens. The world was very different at that time. Was there ever a fear that this could happen again? Whenever I have an inkling that it might happen again, I said, I will fight it because this is wrong. At our age, we didn't realize it, but we were we were considered the enemy. We were, we were considered the enemy because we were we were in America, but our ancestors are from we Japan. Look, and we so look like the enemy. We look like the enemy. We were not the enemy, but we look like the enemy, and therefore we were treated as the enemy. At this point, everyone in the group starts talking about war hysteria, and it's eerie how I feel the kind of hysteria they're talking about. In January 2017, when President Trump signed the first version of his Muslim ban, the conversations in my own family's household were reflecting on what happened to Japanese Americans during World War II. We definitely can relate with what you're going through. I'm very sympathetic to Muslims, and I I try to reach out to them, but I can relate to what you're going through. Uh, as a second generation. Uh, the organization that we're associated with is called uh, the National Coalition for Regis and Reparations. That's the voice of Steve Nagano. He was here visiting his mother and happened to join our group along with his wife, Patty, while we were all sharing stories. Right after 9-11, I think it was two weeks after we had a candlelight vigil. And uh, since then, we've had support with them. And we started a program called Bridging Communities, in which we uh, worked with Muslims groups. Uh, As a matter of fact, a bunch of us have done presentations in uh, mosques. We always had, since the Manzanar pilgrimage, since 9-11, we've had a group take a bus of Muslims to Manzanar, one of the camps. It's the closest camp to, to Los Angeles. I would like it to be part of our Japanese-American culture, you know, to stand up against injustice, particularly injustice against people who are, you know, racially profiled or racially separated. And that's why right now our biggest effort is to try to get a commission in Congress for black reparations. And we participate in the, in the demonstrations at the airport against the Muslim ban. The power of the Executive Order 9066 was incarceration of Japanese. And so, of course, the Muslim ban was also an executive order. I really appreciate what you're doing because uh, this is a way of of, uh, making America aware of what had happened and the experience that, you know, people went through uh, would be a way of possibly not having that done again mm. you know uh and 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 having this uh information that you're talking uh, you're doing which is fantastic if they could put that in the uh 
uh, history books, mm. you know, and uh, let the world know what had happened so that it wouldn't happen again. What is the power of story in all of this? Very powerful, but it has to be written down. It, it, it can't be just oral. It has to be writ written down for the next generation. And um, I've tried to tell my children and grandchildren more and more each year. They don't know it all yet because I don't think it all comes out at once. I feel this severity deeply, the importance of documenting our history and knowing we are a part of each other's stories. I think that stories, uh, if told in in truth, that, that uh, it makes the event alive. What had happened? Story is a way of making things so that it makes it, us a part of it. When I originally started working on REP, I thought this project was going to focus on the story of representation around American Muslims. And when I was at the Shinoda's house a month ago, Mike planted the seed for this Japanese-American story being a part of REP, reminding me of our own interconnectedness. Rep is less about a group of people and more about how the way we tell stories about ourselves and each other are impacting all of us. What's your name? Uh, under Noor, N-O-O-R. So, I've just picked up some sushi for family dinner at the Shinoda's and just told them all about my day. Thank you. So... They were, that's my dad's age. I bet you heard things about gardens. Yes. You heard things about like watching movies on the sides of like buildings or on the sides of water towers and playing baseball and how they like connected with one another and tried to make it feel like a community and not like a prison, even though the guns are on the towers pointed inside. Um, those, that perspective is specific to the, the group of people who was young enough that it would be confusing to them. And so the older generation who was more affected and who were more weighed down by the actual experience because they had an awareness, those people don't talk about it, or didn't talk about it. They were hard. My, my older aunts were very, uh, it was so hard to get a story out of them. And when you did, when you did get a story out of them, their stories were always like, but it's not a big deal. Oh, but we, we got through it and, you know, oh, and so-and-so was, like, so helpful. It's like, no, 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 so-and-so was very, very helpful. Like, so-and-so died in the camp. Like, you, there's a the severe injustice that went on and you're not acknowledging it. And they go, yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. But, but, like, we don't focus on that. Shikataganai. 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 Mm -hmm. And it, that it, just kept coming up. Yeah, it cannot be helped. That's, it cannot be helped, Shikataganai. That's the... That's very specific to the Japanese-American um, experience. So imagine that that's like a, a cornerstone of the way to deal with these things. But also, by the way, it extends into like, like if somebody has cancer, they act that way. If somebody's like life is falling apart, families will act that way. But this specifically, mm -hmm. for them to have that as part of the culture... And then to speak up on somebody else's behalf mm -hmm. is like, a, that's a pretty big act in, in Japanese American culture. Hinako texted me like right before we got here and said, what a day you brought to us. I talked to them after the interview and everyone said that it was so much more than they expected. And they were so appreciate, they so appreciated that you asked them about their feelings and not just facts. I was very surprised that they were expressive because Japanese American people, especially the old generation, don't usually express their feelings at all, even to their family. So it was huge even to Stephen and me to be there and listen to them. Yeah, that's a, a common theme you'll, you'll hear is that the young generations um, are always so excited to hear the stories of the old generations because they'll, they'll tell the happy stories easily and readily, but the difficult times 
are not stories that they they give up very read, readily. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when you interviewed Andy Nesson for the Kenji song, that your family was kind of shocked. Yeah. That she would do the interview. My family was locked up back in 42. My family was there where it was dark and damp, and they called it an internment camp. They, the, I heard from a bunch of relatives, like, they were like, well, you got, you recorded stories that day that, like, our, that her children hadn't heard. Mm. Yeah. And it was, I'm no journalist. I was just, like, I had this song, and I wanted to know, I wanted to get the song right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you don't have to be a journal. Like, I think that we all can just ask our elders about their lives so that we know where we came from. Mm-hmm. And that seemed to be the theme, but the way that everything kind of just tied together and that it was all interconnected, like that's something that I've never seen the power of story unfold that way. You have to trust that the story is going to, to reveal itself to you. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So thanks. Thanks for the news tip. Hey. <laughs> I obviously had no idea what I was doing. Hinako, the person who so generously introduced me to her family, we stay in touch. So like when I was working with you, I knew like what you do, and I really admire what you are trying to do and you you achieved. Honestly, I was really speechless because that generation, Japanese old people, they don't really say their emotion parts. Wow, like these people has a lot inside and just didn't either didn't have an opportunity or you. They didn't want to speak up so much. But that day was like everybody speaking what everybody wants to speak. That was amazing and felt so organic and it was meant to be. Both my husband and I told my father-in-law like, wow, like you, I didn't know you speak that much, (laughs) you know. Why do you think that day everyone felt like they could be open with each other? I don't know, but that's like, the energy was different. I thought you're going to ask them so many questions. But everybody just like, oh, like, I have a story, like, <laughs> you know. So I think that's important to just generation, generation, to hand it over and keep the story going. I think that's why we are doing this, right? <laughs> Can I say something? Go ahead. Um, uh, I just wanted to say that in class we're learning about uh, the times where people were enslaved, and I was thinking with my friend Jane that, well, what if we were in those times? How would we feel? Like, if it was a little, I think it was earlier or later, I would probably be put in the Japanese internment camps, Mm. or she would be an enslaved person. Like, Mm. how would that feel? to be in those people's shoes. Like, what would we do about it if Mm. we were then? Did you have any ideas of what you would do? I said that I don't know what I would do because if it was a life or death situation, then I'd probably want to (laughs) live. I would just probably follow what I was supposed to do. Yeah. Great story. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. The end. Wow. What a day. Lots of, lots of weird, what do you call it? Not miracles. Co- coincidence, you call them they were They were actual miracles. Whenever I've talked about this experience with my friends and family, I go back to the word miracle. But what it really is is the result of remaining and committing to being open to a story. Little moments built up to all of this. Mike sharing how he related to Rep, how I met Hanako and St. Vincent on the same day. Right before I headed over to the group interview, my cousin stopped by my hotel. I hadn't seen her in years. And the first thing she tells me is how her driver spontaneously gave her a card handwriting a Japanese saying on it to alleviate stress and anxiety. My cousin handed the card to me, not even knowing that I was working on this story. 
And later, when I left the interview to head back to the Shinodas, my driver, who was German, started speaking Japanese in the car, telling us he was married to a Japanese woman for almost 40 years. There are so many of these in-between moments. And I share this with you all because the miracle is knowing how interconnected we all are and how when we choose to witness the connectedness in our stories, we also choose to heal. Stephen Nagano, who joined the group later and told us about his work with Muslim Americans, shared something else with me that I keep thinking about. He said, it wasn't until gaining redress and reparations and the US government issuing an apology that the shame Japanese Americans associated with incarceration was finally lifted. He continues to tell me that it was only soon after that that there was a surge in books, movies, and plays that spoke to this experience. The story of Shikata Ganai completely changed how I approach rep. Less controlling what story comes next and more surrendering. Because it's through this witnessing, affirming, and documenting of our stories that our future can be helped. So, this is Rep. I'm Noor Tajuri, as always, at your service. Rep is a production of At Your Service, School of Humans, and iHeart Podcasts. This show is written and produced by me, Noor Tajuri, and Zarin Burnett. Editing, production, sound design, and scoring by James T. Green of Molten Heart. Theme song written and composed by Maimuna Youssef, a.k.a. Mumu Fresh. Our senior producer is Amelia Brock. Our associate producers are Tyler Donahue and Betsy Cardenas. Mix and master by Bahid Frazier. Audio assembly by Mary Dew. Fact-checking by Marissa Brown. Archival of 1981 hearings are from Nikkei for Civil Rights and Redress and Visual Communications. Violin Tsunami Song is written by Karo Ishibashi, performed by Kishi Bashi, courtesy of Joyful Noise Records by arrangement with Terror Bird Media. Kenji Song, Words and Music by Mike Shinoda, copyright Universal Music, Z Songs on behalf of itself and Fort Minor. Our executive producers are Adam Kafif, Zarin Burnett, Jason English, and me, Noor Tejuri. Special thanks to Virginia Prescott from School of Humans and Will Pearson from iHeart Podcasts. I'd also like to thank Hinako, Steve, and Don Murashige, the Shinoda family, Steve and Patty Nagano, Annie Clark, Mitsuru and Nancy Shiozaki, Kazuko Tanaka, and Etsuko Saguchi for trusting us with this story. And if this podcast resonated with you and you would like to support our show, please rate and review and share it with someone you think may enjoy it. Tune in to Rep next time. I'm Noor Tejuri, as always, at your service. <laughs> <laughs>